The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, as you guys know, I was supposed to preach last Sunday. And I just got knocked down with a really bad uh, case of the flu. And so I'm really grateful to Pastor Lester. He's not here today. I think he's actually out of town. Uh, But uh, for um, subbing, I mean, the second I went down, I was like, there's no way I'm preaching on Sunday. And so uh, I was very grateful that he he was able to cover for me uh, last week. Um, Also hope that you guys have taken up this challenge for that biannual Bible reading uh, plan, and so I think many of you took them. If you did not, I'll actually try to print some more right after the service and have them available on the table downstairs right outside the, the fellowship hall. Um, I think we are in week three, and I've actually been sticking with it so far. Despite the flu, I had to catch up a little bit from that missed week, but uh, it's been actually very personal rewarding for me to be going through these uh, both. Uh, right now, it's the Gospel of Mark and the book of Genesis. Um, why don't we begin with a word of prayer, and then we will continue into this series on idolatry that we began on the first Sunday of this year. Lord, open up our hearts. Give us wisdom that can only come from you, uh, that can understand your perspective, your heart for us. Let the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of your word expose what needs to be exposed, and to give to us the courage to face ourselves through the um, revealing work of your truth, that in that exposure we may find your grace waiting for us to heal us of our idolatries and to open our eyes to see the matchless worth of Christ who alone stands as the one worthy of our worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned in the last time I preached that uh, we're starting a a relatively brief series on idolatry. I think it's going to take us about seven messages or so to cover it. And so for today and for the next time I preach, I'll basically sort of... I'm sorry, there's not a water here today. Could I get one? Um, Basically unpack a... uh, a theology of idolatry. We'll sort of look at it from that perspective. Oh, thank you, Carol. <clears throat> thank you. <clears throat> we'll basically look at um, the essence of idolatry as it's revealed to us in the Bible. And then for the remaining four or five messages, we're going to look at the specific idols that are most relevant, I believe, in contemporary uh, American culture. So we'll look at things like money, uh, family, uh, politics, religion even. That's the one I'm actually looking most forward to is unpacking the idea of religion as an idol. And by the end of it, I hope to have offended everybody in this room, okay, And, and revealed all of our sacred cows, okay, at some level or another. Well, let's just jump right into it. I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that idolatry was the defining sin in the Old Testament. The struggles 
of God and his people recorded in the Old Testament. In Moses' rebuke to the Israelites, the theme of idolatry takes center stage. Deuteronomy 32 For 16 to 21 says, they made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. So no doubt idolatry looms large in the indictment against his people. 1 Samuel 12, verse 21 says, Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. God, in fact, will point to idolatry as the main reason why he allowed the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered by the Assyrians. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7 to 12, it says, all this took place, talking about the Israelites being defeated in battle and being conquered. It says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. Again, idolatry takes center stage and the rebuke of God to his people. The core message of the prophets would echo this theme of idolatry over and over again through the centuries. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Jeremiah 10, verse 14, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. This is only a small sampling of the myriad of passages in the Old Testament which demonstrate that the sin of idolatry was at the heart of God's struggles with his people in the Old Testament. But here is the thing. When you get to the New Testament, there are surprisingly few verses that directly rebuke the sin of idolatry. You get a couple of verses here and there that do warn Christians to stay away from idolatry. But the frequency of these commands is nothing compared to the Old Testament. Um. 
And there's a question here. What's going on here? Um, there is this ongoing debate that arises. So it's clear that there is still idolatry in the New Testament times because there's this debate even in the church about whether Christians could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, Acts 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So clearly idolatry is still an ongoing issue. So then why isn't it addressed more directly, either by Jesus as recorded in the Gospels or by the letters of the apostles in the era of the church? And I think the truth is, for any of us, I don't think we really tend to think of our struggle with sin in the context of idolatry a whole lot. Uh, If I could put it like this, if idolatry is reduced to nothing more than abandoning our belief in God and believing in other gods, the truth is it doesn't really seem like a temptation that any of us really struggle with, does it? I mean, whatever your struggles with sin may be, I suspect that none of you follow a pattern of, shoot, I've done it again. I've become a Muslim. And then eventually you find your way from Allah back to Yahweh and return to Christianity just a few weeks later under temptation to become a Buddhist. And then say, I've done it again. And you come back to God. I don't think that this is a typical struggle of a Christian. is jumping from Islam to Buddhism to Hinduism and back to Christianity. So then is it safe to say that idolatry is a sin of the past? It's a struggle that we as modern Christians no longer have to worry about. In other words, maybe what I'm saying is, is this. Did the people of an earlier time, like the Old Testament era, struggle with this issue of idolatry because they frankly were just more primitive than we were? And because they lived in a world in which there were many gods, they were often tempted to follow these other gods. But we in our enlightened, more modern expression of religion, which there's no doubt about is more dominantly monotheistic or belief in one god, regardless of what that religion may be, it's just not a modern-day struggle anymore. Well, as you can probably guess, I don't think the answer is quite that simple. Because if it were, then I don't know why I'd be preaching seven messages on a sin that is basically a historical relic. Let me try to get a bit at the core of idolatry, what we can call the idolatry of the heart. Let me put it like this. If the core of religion is nothing more than an agreement to a set of facts that we believe to be true, then it's hard to make sense of how the Israelites, or frankly anyone, could so easily be swayed to worship other gods. Because why would somebody decide one day that they believe Yahweh is a true God, and then suddenly the next thing you know, I believe in Allah. Or I believe in Baal. Or I believe in Asherah. It doesn't make sense. How can anybody switch so easily from one belief system to another and say, no, this is God. No, this is God. No, this will be my God. 
The problem is this, is that we think of faith as largely a matter of the head. But the truth is that faith is primarily a matter of the heart. I think that helps to explain why we can hear a thought-provoking and challenging sermon on Sunday and be determined to become a different person and change the course of our life. And yet, by Wednesday, we're right back to our old habits again, aren't we? And the truth is, nothing has changed. Why? Because thinking our way to the life that God desires is never enough. Now, I need to clarify something. When I say it's a matter of the heart, I think there's some confusion because of the modern English way that we use the word heart. We tend to think of head and heart as two things that are in opposition against each other. And that's not really what the Bible means when it's talking about the heart. The head we think of as the rational, intellectual part of us. And then we think of the heart as the sort of sentimentalized, emotional, even irrational part of us, right? But when the Bible talks about the heart, it actually has both of those ideas in mind. It has our thinking rational mind as well as our emotional seat. And that is the heart in the biblical view. Is it is that place where our deepest loves lie. It is that place out of which flows all of the choices that we make in our life. And the Bible would say that is the heart. In other words, we're not only talking about the heart, we're not just talking about a mindless faith where we turn off our brains. But what it is saying is that our brains are never enough alone. They are necessary but not sufficient, okay? What the Bible would say is that our faith is driven by the core of our being, what we can call the heart. Our heart is the seat of our deepest longings and loves, our greatest hopes and desires. As James Smith argues, we are not primarily thinking beings. We are desiring beings. In other words, if you were to distill the human personality into one description, what Smith is arguing is, don't think of us as thinking beings, but as desiring beings. Beings that long to love something. And as a result of that, we are continually on a quest to find an answer to these deepest longings in our soul. Smith writes, Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? What do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us, precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4, 23. 
Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. You see, The people in ancient times very conveniently abandoned God and whatever other gods they followed and they switched allegiances very easily because these gods were nothing more than a vehicle to get to what they really wanted in life. The things that they really worshipped. The deepest hopes and dreams in their life. And whatever God could get them to that destination, whatever was convenient was okay with them. And in that sense, maybe we aren't so different from the ancients as we think we are. What I would argue is this. We may be loyal to our religious labels, but unfaithful to our God. In other words, you may proudly claim the label of being called a Christian. And maybe you come to church every Sunday. You may never slip into that mosque in a moment of weakness. But the truth is, maybe you have given your heart away to many other things. The foundational commandment against idolatry is found at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. It's the first one. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to 6 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Two things I want you to observe in this commandment. Look first at the, at the breadth of the things that are covered in the commandment. I think the implication of the way that God is phrasing it here is that you, in your wayward heart, will have this tendency to make anything an idol that you could grab your hands on. Anything can become an idol. And then the other thing that I want you to note about this command is this. This is not the language of intellectual belief. But it is the language of love and devotion. In other words, to fully understand this commandment against idolatry, we have to read it alongside what Jesus taught is the greatest commandment in the entire law of Moses. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In other words, at the root of it, idolatry is a violation of this greatest commandment. What God asks of us is nothing less than to place, to have him hold that place of greatest love 
in our hearts. A greatest devotion. Anything less than that, God says, is unfaithfulness and idolatry. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. What God is saying is, I am not satisfied with you simply going through the motions and acting religious and showing up at church on Sunday. I want your heart. I want all of it. Anything less than that is idolatry. He is always after our hearts. If this is the essence of idolatry, then maybe it is not as absent in the New Testament as we think it is. D.A. Carson, who teaches right here at Trinity, believes that the sin of idolatry can be located in the New Testament primarily through this Greek word, epithumia. I usually try to avoid the Greek whenever I can and try not to get too technical, but this is one of the rare times I think this is actually helpful to know the actual word that is used here in the New Testament. Because this word epithumia, which usually is translated in most English Bibles as either lust or evil desire, is made up of two separate words. The first part of it is this prefix epi, which means over, and then thumia, which means desire. And so if you put that together, it's interesting. The idea of epithumia is like this. It is an over-desire or over-the-top, all-consuming desire for something. It is an intense longing. It's interestingly the word that is chosen by Luke in his gospel to describe how Jesus felt about the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, I have eagerly desired, or epithumia, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It describes the depth and intensity with which Jesus felt this desire or longing to share this Passover meal with his disciples. It is used positively in this case, but in almost every other of the nearly 40 occurrences of this word in the New Testament, it's used negatively to talk about a sinful desire. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, epithumia, which wage war against your soul. Romans 6, 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Epithumia again. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Flee the evil desires or epithumia of youth. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who will call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Why I think this word is so important is this. It's saying that the nature of this sin is to take what is a legitimate desire, whether it is sex or good food or companionship or security, And taking it out of that proper place in God's creation and giving it an undue weight that it does not deserve. An over-the-top, an over-desire. A desire that has outspilled the boundaries of God's design so that it becomes an idol 
In other words, in our sinfulness, we take even good things and turn them into gods or idols. When our desire for them goes beyond what God intended, making them into ultimate desires. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and then there's that word again, epithumia, evil desires and greed, which is what? Idolatry. Idolatry. As Paul points out, idolatry isn't limited to having a clay figurine in your house that you bow to. It is talking about something much deeper than that, about a fundamental bent in the heart toward an all-consuming desire that has replaced God himself. You see, sex, wealth, pleasure, these aren't inherently evil things, but they can become idols when they become ultimate things. God's in our heart. Even the Old Testament seems to recognize this idolatry, the heart dynamic, because if you look in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. In their hearts. That's even in the Old Testament. Tim Keller writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look to at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. So in this last part of the message, I want to sort of unpack what would it mean, what would it look like for us to abandon these idols and to turn to God? And so at the heart of this issue of idolatry is the singular question, what do you want? What do you want? What do you really, really want in life? What do you want more than anything else in your life? What do you long for? What do you daydream about? What do you need in your life to make it feel like it was all worth it in the end? Jamie Smith continues and he says this, to be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward a destination of your dreams. As Blaise Pascal put it in his famous wager, quote, you have to wager. It is not up to you. You are already committed. In other words, you can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. 
To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life. Some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. We adopt ways of life that are indexed to such visions of the good life. Not usually because we think through our options, but rather because some picture captures our imagination. And I wonder, what is the picture of the good life that has captured your heart? That motivates you to get up every day and to do what you do? In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning is this. If we're going to deal seriously with the sin of idolatry, then we have to answer this question with courage and with honesty. Because it may be one of the most difficult questions you can ask yourself. What do I really want? What do I want? Smith references... uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, 1979 haunting classic, Stalker. Uh, It's a film about three men who go on this expedition. One of them is a writer. And another one is a professor. And the third is the stalker, who acts as the guide of these two men. And they're traveling to this destination, this mysterious restricted zone, That's called the zone. And in the zone, there is a room. And what the stalker tells these two men is this, when they arrive upon this room. He says, when you go into this room, what this room will do for you is it will give you your deepest, most intimate desire. Your inmost desire at the core of your heart will be given to you when you enter that room. But you see, it's not what you think you wish for. It's what you actually most deeply want. And so the two men are nervous. They hesitate. They're not sure they want to go into the room because a disturbing realization creeps over them. How do I know what my deepest desire even is? And what if it turns out to be not what I think it is? In other words, what these men faced with entering this room are wrestling with is, what if I am not who I think I am? I wonder how you would feel if you were given that opportunity to enter a room like that. Would you go in? (laughs) Or would it terrify you? What is it that I really want? And what if I were to get it? Jen Pollock-Michel writes this. We simply can't ignore desire. Desire is primal. To be human is to want. Reflecting on our desires asks us to address the more naked parts of who we are. And why we do what we do. When we talk about desire, we undress our hearts. When we're stuck in patterns of chronic sin, we should think to ask, what must I be wanting to continually persist in these choices 
we usually know that something is driving our behavior. But the forces often feel imperceptible to us. The simple question, what do I want, can lead to important change. We're asking not just what do I want, but is what I want right? We're interested in congruence. Is what I want what God wants for me? Am I following God's will? This is a picture of Jen Pollock Michelle. This is Michelle, the author. This is the picture that you would see in the inside cover of a book that she wrote. But this is Michelle, the mom. In order to find a more intensive block of writing for the book that I'm quoting from today, Teach Us to Want, you know, she's the mother of five young children. And in order to get this book finally published, she rented a house in Montreal and took her whole family there. And then she enrolled her five kids into this day camp for two weeks. And as soon as she dropped them off, she drove to a cafe where she wrote furiously eight hours a day to get this book done. And as productive as that time of writing was for her, she was torn inside about this decision. And it was worse every morning when she had to drop off the youngest kid who went into fits of screaming and crying, wanting his mother. And she began to wrestle with this book. Was her desire to become an author a calling from God? Or was this just a selfish hobby? Was this need to publish really from God? Or was it simply the frustrated reaction of a restless and unsatisfied stay-at-home mom? She found herself at a place where she had to really wrestle with this. And listen, I don't think this is a gender issue because I think any guy should wrestle with the same set of questions, frankly. It's not a gender issue. It's a discipleship issue. Whether you are a man or a woman, all of us need to go through this kind of wrestling as we lay our desires before God and invite him to examine whether or not the things that we desire are becoming idols in our heart. Rosaria Butterfield says this, one very difficult aspect about sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life. Plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory. And my mind an excuse-making factory. Especially when it comes to dealing with the kind of sin that clobbers me the most. Indwelling sin. The unrelenting, ever-present kind that never takes a Sabbath. Do you understand that wrestling in your own heart? When does a good desire ordained by God, become an idol in my heart. I think the word of God is invaluable for exposing this in us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13 says, For the word of God is act alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to him whom we must give an account. That should be an invitation to us to say, God, examine my heart. Are these desires honoring to you and pleasing in your sight? St. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God warns us against idols because he says, ultimately, all of them are gods that will fail you. They promise to fulfill the deepest desires of your heart, but at the end of it all, they will rob you of everything. They are liars. They never deliver what they promise. They promise everything, but give you nothing. In other words, what Augustine is saying is that by his design, we were made to be worshipers of God and God alone. And that heart will remain restless until it finds its rest in God alone. He alone can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 10 through 13 and verse 25 says this. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. God tells us people that are chasing after these idols, these are worthless gods. It is like trying to store water in leaky jars, like in sieves. That just cannot hold water. And Jesus echoes that same heart of God in John chapter 10, verse 10 through 15. When he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Saying, why do you follow these others that will only abandon you in your moment of need? I alone am the good shepherd that will lay down my life for you. Tim Keller writes, in the 1830s when Alexis de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, he noted a, quote, strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. America believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was illusory because the Tocqueville added, quote, the incomplete joys of this world 
will never satisfy the human heart. This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. There is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others, so that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort in your family to get you through. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. What is the cause of this, quote, strange melancholy that permeates our society, even during boom times of frenetic activity, and which turns to outright despair when prosperity diminishes? De Tocqueville says it comes from taking some, quote, incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. That is the definition of idolatry. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross and is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. When I think about this picture that Keller is painting of a despair that could crush the human spirit, I'm reminded of Ahithophel. Remember that name, Ahithophel? If you were here for our Life of David series that we just finished a little while ago, you know that Ahithophel was King David's advisor, the most highly regarded advisor in the entire country. But the people rejected his advice and chose Hushai's advice over his. And once he realized that his advice had been rejected, you know the story. You know what happened. He went home on his donkey, quietly put the affairs of his home in order, and he hung himself. He committed suicide. In other words, to Ahithophel, if my advice is no longer respected in this land, I am nothing. I am nothing. My life has no meaning. This is the tragic end game of idolatry. What I'm saying to you today is this. Love your family. Love them. Enjoy your home. Flourish in your career. But what I am also telling you is that every one of those things may one day break your heart. And these things are too fragile a foundation on which to build your ultimate hopes and dreams in life. Don't let them become idols in your heart. Always reserve the deepest place of love and worship for God and God alone. Because he alone is worthy of your total trust. He alone can bear the weight of your deepest hopes and desires in life. Let's pray.
In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table and join as a church family in this communion meal. But before we do, let me invite you to just take a moment to pray. If I could just give you one homework assignment this week, if I could invite you to come before God in a spirit of submission and surrender and just in a spirit-led way, ask God, what do I want? What do I want? What do the persistent choices that I make in my life reveal about my deepest longings in this life? And is God at the center of all of that? Because if he's not, then that's probably an idol that is competing for your affection for God. And so as we begin this series on idolatry, we just invite you to that place of self-reflection, of asking yourself courageously and honestly, not religiously, not sanctimoniously, not hypocritically, but honestly, what do I want? And what are the gods that will get me to that destination? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, everything that is in you. Love the Lord your God. It's the greatest commandment. And anything less than that is idolatry. Would you just pray to the Lord for a couple minutes? Our worship team will lead us in one song of response, and then we'll come to the Lord's table.